Section 10 of The Descent of Man, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Descent of Man, Part 1 by Charles Darwin. Chapter 4. Comparison of the Mental Powers of Man and the Lower Animals Continued, Part 1. The Moral Sense, Fundamental Proposition, the qualities of social animals, origin of sociability, struggle between opposed instincts, man a social animal. The more enduring social instincts conquer other less persistent instincts. The social virtues alone regarded by savages. The self-regarding virtues acquired at a latter stage of development. The importance of the judgment of the members of the same community on conduct. Transmission of Moral Tendencies Summary I fully subscribe to the judgment of those writers who maintain that of all the differences between man and the lower animals, the moral sense or conscience is by far the most important. This sense, as Mackintosh remarks, has a rightful supremacy over every other principle of human action. It is summed up in that short but imperious word, ought, so full of high significance. It is the most noble of all the attributes of man, leading him without a moment's hesitation to risk his life for that of a fellow creature, or, after due deliberation, impelled simply by the deep feeling of right or duty, to sacrifice it in some great cause. Immanuel Kant exclaims, Duty, wondrous thought, that works neither by fond insinuation, flattery, nor by any threat, but merely by holding up thy naked law in the soul, and so exhorting for thyself always reverence, if not always obedience, before whom all appetites are dumb, however secretly they rebel, whence thy original. This great question has been discussed by many writers. Mr. Bain gives a list of twenty-six British authors who have written on this subject, and whose names are familiar to every reader. To these, Mr. Bain's own name, and those of Mr. Leckie, Mr. Shadworth Hodson, Sir J. Lubbock, and others might be added, of consummate ability, and my sole excuse for touching on it is the impossibility of here passing it over, and because, as far as I know, no one has approached it exclusively from the side of natural history. The investigation possesses also some independent interest, as an attempt to see how far the study of the lower animals throws light upon one of the highest physical faculties of man. The following proposition seems to me in a high degree probable, namely, that any animal whatever, endowed with well-marked social instincts, Sir B. Brodie, after observing that man is a social animal, asks the pregnant question, ought this not to settle the disputed question as to the existence of a moral sense? Similar ideas have probably occurred to many persons, as they did long ago, to Marcus Aurelius. Mr. J. S. Mill speaks, in his celebrated work, Utilitarianism, of the social feelings as a powerful natural sentiment, and as the natural basis of sentiment for utilitarian morality. Again, he says, like the other acquired capacities above referred to, the moral faculty, if not part of our nature, is a natural outgrowth from it capable, like them, in a certain small degree, of springing up spontaneously. But in opposition to all this, he also remarks, if, as in my own belief, 
the moral feelings are not innate but acquired they are not for that reason less natural it is with hesitation that i venture to differ at all from so profound a thinker but it can be hardly disputed that the social feelings are instinctive or innate in the lower animals and why should they not be so in man mr bain and others believe that the moral sense is acquired by each individual during his lifetime on the general theory of evolution this is at least extremely improbable the ignoring of all transmitted mental qualities will as it seems to me be hereafter judged as a most serious blemish in the works of mr mill the parental and filial affections being here included would invariably acquire a moral sense or conscience as soon as its intellectual powers had become as well or nearly as well developed as in man for firstly the social instincts lead an animal to take pleasure in the society of its fellows to feel a certain amount of sympathy with them and to perform various services for them the services may be of a definite and evidently instinctive nature or they may be only a wish and readiness as with most of the higher social animals to aid their fellows in certain general ways but these feelings and services are by no means extended to all the individuals of the same species only to those of the same association secondly as soon as the mental faculties have become highly developed images of all past actions and motives would be incessantly passing through the brain of each individual and that feeling of dissatisfaction or even misery which invariably results as we shall hereafter see from any unsatisfied instinct would arise as often as it were perceived that the enduring and always present social instinct had yielded to some other instinct at the time stronger but neither enduring in its nature or leaving behind it a very vivid impression it is clear that many instinctive desires such as that of hunger are in their nature of short duration and after being satisfied are not readily or vividly recalled thirdly after the power of language had been acquired and the wishes of the community could be expressed the common opinion how each member ought to act for the public good would naturally become in a paramount degree the guide to action but it should be borne in mind that however great weight we may attribute to public opinion our regard for the approbation and the disapprobation of our fellows depends on sympathy which as we shall see forms an essential part of the social instinct and is indeed its foundation stone lastly habit in the individual would ultimately play a very important part in guiding the conduct of each member for the social instinct together with sympathy is like any other instinct greatly strengthened by habit and so consequently would be obedience to the wishes and judgment of the community these several subordinate propositions must now be discussed and some of them at considerable length it may be well first to premise that i do not wish to maintain that any strictly social animal if its intellectual faculties were to become as active and as highly developed as in man would acquire exactly the same moral sense as ours in the same manner as various animals have some sense of beauty though they admire widely different objects so they might have a sense of right and wrong though led by it to follow widely different lines of conduct if for instance to take an extreme case men were reared under precisely the same conditions as hive bees there can hardly be a doubt that our unmarried females would like the worker bees 
think it a sacred duty to kill their brothers, and mothers would strive to kill their fertile daughters, and no one would think of interfering. Mr. H. Sedwick remarks in an able discussion on this subject, A superior bee, we may feel sure, would aspire to a milder solution of the population question. Judging, however, from the habit of many or most savages, man solves the problem by female infanticide, polyandry, and promiscuous intercourse. Therefore it may well be doubted whether it would be by a milder method. Miss Colbin, in commenting on the same illustration, says the principles of social duty would thus be reversed, and by this I presume she means that the fulfilment of a social duty would tend to the injury of individuals. But she overlooks the fact, which she would doubtless admit, that the instincts of a bee have been acquired for the good of the community. She goes so far as to say that if the theory of ethics advocated in this chapter were ever generally accepted, I cannot but believe that in the hour of their triumph would be sounded the knell of the virtue of mankind. It is to be hoped that the belief in the permanence of virtue on this earth is not held by many persons on so weak a tenure. Nevertheless, the bee, or any other social animal, would gain in our supposed case, as it appears to me, some feeling of right or wrong, or a conscience. For each individual would have an inward sense of possessing certain stronger or more enduring instincts, and others less strong or enduring. So there would often be a struggle as to which impulse should be followed, and satisfaction, dissatisfaction, or even misery would be felt, as past impressions were compared during their incessant passage through the mind. In this case, an inward monitor would tell the animal that it would have been better to have followed the one impulse rather than the other. The one course ought to have been followed, and the other ought not. The one would have been right, and the other wrong. But to these terms I shall recur. Sociability Animals of many kinds are social. We find even distinct species living together. For example, some American monkeys and united flocks of rooks, jackdaws, and starlings. Man shows the same feeling in his strong love for the dog, which the dog returns with interest. Everyone must have noticed how miserable horses, dogs, sheep, etc., are when separated from their companions, and what strong mutual affection the two former kinds at least show on their reunion. It is curious to speculate on the feelings of a dog, who will rest peacefully for hours in a room with his master or any of the family, without the least notice being taken of him. But if left for a short time by himself, barks or howls dismally. We will confine our attention to the higher social animals and pass over insects, though some of these are social and aid one another in many important ways. The most common mutual service in the higher animals is to warn one another of danger by means of the united senses of all. Every sportsman knows, as Dr. Jacob remarks, how difficult it is to approach animals in a herd or troop. Wild horses and cattle do not, I believe, make any danger signal, but the attitude of any one of them who first discovers an enemy warms the others. Rabbits stamp loudly on the ground with their hind feet as a signal, Sheep and chamois do the same with their forefeet, uttering likewise a whistle. Many birds and some mammals post sentinels, which in the case of seals are said generally to be the females. 
The leader of a troop of monkeys acts as a sentinel and utters cries expressive both of danger and of safety. Social animals perform many little services for each other. Horses nibble and cows lick each other on any spot which itches. Monkeys search each other for external parasites. And Brehm states that after a troop of the Cercopithecus griseoviridus hath rushed through a thorny brake, each monkey stretches itself on a branch, and another monkey sitting by conscientiously examines its fur and extracts every thorn or burr. Animals also render more important services to one another. Thus wolves and some other beasts of prey hunk in packs, and aid one another in attacking their victims. Pelicans fish in concert. The hamadryas baboon turn over stones to find insects, etc., and when they come to a large one, as many as can stand round, turn it over together and share the booty. Social animals mutually defend each other. Bull bisons in North America, when there is danger, drive the cows and calves into the middle of the herd, whilst they defend the outside. I shall also in a future chapter give an account of two young wild bulls at Chillingham attacking an old one in concert, and of two stallions together trying to drive away a third stallion from a group of mares. In Abyssinia, Bram encountered a great troop of baboons who were crossing a valley. Some had already ascended the opposite mountain, and some were still in the valley. The latter attacked by the dogs, but the old males immediately hurried down from the rocks, and with mouths widely opened, roared so fearfully that the dogs quickly drew back. They were again encouraged to the attack, but by this time all the baboons had reascended the heights, except the young one, about six months old, who, loudly calling for aid, climbed on a block of rock and was surrounded. Now one of the largest males, a true hero, came down again from the mountain, slowly went to the young one, coaxed him, and triumphantly led him away, the dogs being far too much astonished to make an attack. I cannot resist giving another scene which was witnessed by the same naturalist. An eagle seized a young Cacopothecus, which by clinging to a branch was not at once carried off. He cried loudly for assistance, upon which the other members of the troop, with much uproar, rushed to the rescue, surrounded the eagle, and pulled out so many feathers that he had no longer thought of his prey, but only how to escape. This eagle, as Brem remarks, surely would never again attack a single monkey of a troop. Mr. Belt gives the case of a spider monkey, Ateles in Nicaragua, who was heard screaming for nearly two hours in the forest, and was found with an eagle perched close by to it. The bird apparently feared to attack as long as it remained face to face, and Mr. Belt believes, from what he has seen of the habits of these monkeys, that they protect themselves from eagles by keeping two or three together. It is certain that associated animals have a feeling of love for each other which is not felt by non-social adult animals. How far in most cases they actually sympathise in the pains and pleasures of others is more doubtful, especially with respect to pleasures. Mr Buxton, however, who had excellent means of observation, states that his macaws, which live free in Norfolk, took an extravagant interest in a pair with a nest, 
and whenever the female left it she was surrounded by a troop screaming horrible acclamations in her honour. It is often difficult to judge whether animals have any feeling for the suffering of others of their kind. Who can say what cows feel when they surround and stare intently on a dying or dead companion? Apparently, however, as Uzo remarks, they feel no pity. That animals sometimes are far from feeling any sympathy is too certain, for they will expel a wounded animal from the herd, or gore or worry it to death. This is almost the blackest fact in natural history, unless, indeed, the explanation which has been suggested is true, that their instinct or reason leads them to expel an injured companion, lest beasts of prey, including man, should be tempted to follow the troop. In this case their conduct is not much worse than that of North American Indians, who leave their feeble comrades to perish on the plains, or the Fijians, who, when their parents get old or fall ill, bury them alive. Many animals, however, certainly sympathise with each other's distress or danger. This is the case even with birds. Captain Stanbury, Captain Stansbury also gives an interesting account of the manner in which a very young pelican, carried away by a strong stream, was guided and encouraged in its attempt to reach the shore by half a dozen old birds. Found that on a salt lake in Utah, an old and completely blind pelican, which was very fat, and must have been well fed for a long time by his companion. Mr. Mr. Blythe, as he informs me, saw Indian crows feeding two or three of their companions who were blind, and I have heard of an analogous case with the domestic cock. We may, if we choose, call these actions instinctive, but such cases are much too rare for the development of any special instinct. As Mr. Bain states, effective aid to a sufferer springs from sympathy proper. I have myself seen a dog, who never passed a cat who lay sick in a basket, and was a great friend of his, without giving her a few licks with his tongue, the surest sign of kind feeling in a dog. It must be called sympathy that leads a courageous dog to fly at anyone who strikes his master, as he certainly will. I saw a person pretending to beat a lady, who had a very timid little dog on her lap, and the trial had never been made before. The little creature instantly jumped away, but after the pretended beating was over, it was really pathetic to see how perseveringly he tried to lick his mistress's face and comfort her. Bream states that when a baboon in confinement was pursued to be punished, the others tried to protect him. It must have been sympathy in the cases above given, which led the baboons and Kukopatheka to defend their young comrades from the dogs and the eagle. I will give only one other instance of sympathetic and heroic conduct in the case of a little American monkey. Several years ago a keeper at the zoological gardens showed me some deep and scarcely healed wounds on the nape of his own neck, inflicted on him while kneeling on the floor by a fierce baboon. The little American monkey, who was a warm friend of this keeper, lived in the same large compartment, and was dreadfully afraid of the great baboon. Nevertheless, as soon as he saw his friend in peril, he rushed to the rescue, and by screams and bites so distracted the baboon that the man was able to escape, after, as the surgeon thought, running great risk of his life. 
Beside love and sympathy, animals exhibit other qualities connected with the social instincts, which in us would be called moral, and I agree with Agassiz that dogs possess something very like a conscience. Dogs possess some power of self-command, and this does not appear to be wholly the result of fear. As Probach remarks, they will refrain from stealing food in the absence of their master. They have long been accepted as the very type of fidelity and obedience. But the elephant is likewise very faithful to his driver or keeper, and probably considers him as the leader of the herd. Dr. Hooker informs me that an elephant which he was riding in India became so deeply bogged that he remained stuck fast until the next day, when he was extricated by men with ropes. Under such circumstances, elephants will seize with their trunks any object, dead or alive, to place under their knees to prevent their sinking deeper into the mud. And the driver was dreadfully afraid lest the animal should have seized Dr. Hooker and crushed him to death. But the driver himself, as Dr. Hooker was assured, ran no risk. This forbearance under an emergency so dreadful for a heavy animal is a wonderful proof of noble fidelity. All animals living in a body, which defend themselves or attack their enemies in concert, must indeed be in some degree faithful to one another, and those that follow a leader must be in some degree obedient. When the baboons in Abyssinia plunder a garden, they silently follow their leader, and if an imprudent young animal makes a noise, he receives a slap from the others to teach him silence and obedience. Mr. Galton, who has had excellent opportunities for observing the half-wild cattle in South Africa, says that they cannot endure even a momentary separation from the herd. They are essentially slavish and accept the common determination, seeking no better lot than to be led by any one ox who has enough self-reliance to accept the position. The men who break in these animals for harness watch assiduously for those who, by grazing apart, show a self-reliant disposition, and these they train as fore-oxen. Mr. Galton adds that such animals are rare and valuable, and if many were born they would soon be eliminated, as lions are always on the lookout for the individuals which wander from the herd. With respect to the impulse which leads certain animals to associate together, and to aid one another in many ways, we may infer that in most cases they are impelled by the same sense of satisfaction or pleasure which they experience in performing other instinctive actions, or by the same sense of dissatisfaction as when other instinctive actions are checked. We see this in innumerable instances, and it is illustrated in a striking manner by the acquired instincts of our domestic animals. Thus a young shepherd-dog delights in driving and running round a flock of sheep but not in worrying them. A young foxhound delights in hunting a fox, while some other kinds of dogs, as I have witnessed, utterly disregard foxes. What a strong feeling of inward satisfaction must impel a bird so full of activity to brood day after day over her eggs. Migratory birds are quite immeasurable if stopped from migrating. Perhaps they enjoy starting on their long flight. It is hard to believe that the poor pinion goose, described by Audubon, which started on foot at the proper time for its journey of probably more than a thousand miles, could have felt any joy in so doing. Some instincts are determined solely by painful feelings, as by fear, which lead to self-preservation, 
and is in some cases directed towards special enemies. No one, I presume, can analyse the sensations of pleasure or pain. In many instances, however, it is probable that instincts are persistently followed from a mere force of inheritance, without stimulus of either pleasure or pain. A young pointer, when at first sense game, apparently cannot help pointing. A squirrel in a cage who pats the nuts which it cannot eat, as if to bury them in the ground, can hardly be thought to act thus, either from pleasure or pain. Hence the common assumption that men must be impelled to every action by experiencing some pleasure or pain may be erroneous. Although a habit may be blindly and implicitly followed, independently of any pleasure or pain felt at the moment, yet if it be forcibly and abruptly checked, a vague sense of dissatisfaction is generally experienced. It has often been assumed that animals were in the first place rendered social, and that they feel as a consequence uncomfortable when separated from each other, and comfortable whilst together. But it is more probable view that these sensations were first developed, in order that those animals which would profit by living in society, should be induced to live together, in the same manner as the sense of hunger and the pleasure of eating were no doubt first acquired in order to induce animals to eat. The feeling of pleasure from society is probably an extension of the parental or filial affections, since the social instinct seems to be developed by the young remaining for a long time with their parents, and this extension may be attributed in part to habit, but chiefly to natural selection. With those animals which were benefited by living in close association, the individuals who took the greatest pleasure in society would best escape various dangers while those that cared least for their comrades and lived solitary would perish in greater numbers. With respect to the origin of the parental and filial affections, which apparently lie at the base of the social instincts, we know not the steps by which they have been gained, but we may infer that it has been to a large extent through natural selection. So it has almost certainly been with the unusual and opposite feeling of hatred between the nearest relations as with the worker-bees which kill their brother-drones, and with the queen-bees which kill their daughter-queens. The desire to destroy their nearest relations having been in this case of service to the community. Parental affection, or some feeling which replaces it, has been developed in certain animals extremely low in the scale, for example in starfishes and spiders. It is also occasionally present in a few members alone in a whole group of animals as in the genus Forficula, or earwigs. The all-important emotion of sympathy is distinct from that of love. A mother may passionately love her sleeping and passive infant, but she can hardly at such times be said to feel sympathy for it. The love of a man for his dog is distinct from sympathy, and so is that of a dog for his master. Adam Smith formally argued, as has Mr. Bain recently, that the basis of sympathy lies in our strong retentiveness of former states of pain or pleasure. Hence the sight of another person enduring cold, hunger, fatigue, revives in us some recollection of these states, which are painful even in idea. We are thus impelled to relieve the sufferings of another, in order that our own painful feelings may be at the same time relieved. In like manner we are led to participate in the pleasure of others. 
Mr. Bain states that sympathy is indirectly a source of pleasure to the sympathiser, and he accounts for this through reciprocity. He remarks that the persons benefited or others in his stead may make up by sympathy and good offices returned for all the sacrifice. But if, as appears to be the case, sympathy is strictly an instinct, its exercise would give direct pleasure in the same manner as the exercise, as before remarked, of almost every other instinct. But I cannot see how this view explains the fact that sympathy is excited in an immeasurably stronger degree by a beloved rather than by an indifferent person. The mere sight of his suffering, independently of love, would suffice to call up in us vivid recollections and associations. The explanation may lie in the fact that with all animals, sympathy is directed solely toward the members of the same community, and therefore towards known and more or less beloved members, but not to all individuals of the same species. This fact is not more surprised than that the fears of many animals be directed against special enemies. Species which are not social, such as lions and tigers, no doubt feel sympathy for the suffering of their own young, but not for that of any other animal. With mankind, selfishness, experience and imitation probably add, as Mr. Bain has shown, to the power of sympathy, for we are led by the hope of receiving good in return to perform acts of sympathetic kindness to others, and sympathy is much strengthened by habit. In however complex a manner, this feeling may have originated, as it is one of high importance to all those animals which aid and defend one another, it will have been increased through natural selection. For those communities which included the greatest number of the most sympathetic members would flourish best and rear the greatest number of offspring. End of section 10